Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, uh, we have the same sermon that we have on Sunday mornings in person. But in person, we also have worship through song. We have prayer together as a church. It's not just, you know, sometimes you go to a church service and it's like the worship leader or the pastor or somebody says a prayer to start or close things. But we pray together. Uh, we have fellowship, we have community together. Sometimes we eat together. Um, and then we meet throughout the week in small groups. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. And then we continue our instruction in the Word of God uh, through our podcasts. We have our 20-minute Bible study, our Starting Points podcast, and our Talk About Anything podcast. Uh, and those are all available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. They're also available on our website, faithonhill.com. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill, both Facebook and Instagram. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. We are starting our Christmas series, and so excited to have you with us. Uh, we are going to be looking at some of the prophecies uh, that were key components of the Christmas story. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, looking at the virgin birth of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, open to the book of Isaiah chapter 7, as we study God's Word together in preparation for the celebration of Christ's coming at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, says, When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king in Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told that Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. All right, so a little backstory, if you're, if you're not familiar, is that at this point in the history of Israel, the nation had been divided into two. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah was primarily the, the large tribe of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem that still held allegiance to the house of David as their king. And then uh, also the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Simeon uh, had stayed loyal to Judah. And then most of the Levites had traveled south uh, to the southern kingdom. And the reason had to do uh, with the establishment of idolatrous pagan worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you're Ahaz, the king of Judah, you are in Jerusalem and you're surrounded by your enemies, this, this king, uh, Rezin, the king of Aram, who's it's Basically, what we would now think of as like Syria and Damascus, and you're like, oh man, uh, you know, they're coming against me. But then you get word that Ephraim, which was the capital city uh, and the kind of the dominant tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel, they've joined with them. Your, your brothers, your, your people, your fellow Israelites, even though it's a divided kingdom, they're still your people. Your fellow Jews have sided with your enemies against you. And it's shaken them. So then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Sheraz Joshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct, by the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be calm, 
Do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia, and Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. So they're saying, hey, we're going to come against it. We're going to rip it apart. We're going to take the parts that we want. We're going to set up our puppet king in place of the, you know, Ahaz the, of the line of David. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will too be shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. Do not stand, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So what God is saying to the king is, don't fear. Be careful, for sure. Be careful, but don't fear. Because these people who think they're something, these great men, these great leaders, these great warlords, they're no big deal. You see, you refer to them as, oh, the son of Ramalia is coming against me. God sees him as, he's only Ramalia's son. And that is how we speak in differences. Oh, this great person is coming against me. Oh, it's only them. God is, is telling you, Ahaz, be careful, for sure, be careful, but don't worry. That which is coming against you is not as great or terrible as you suppose it to be. Do you remember before uh, the war in Ukraine started, we were told how terrible and mighty the Russian army was, and I don't discount them still. I understand that there's still horrors and terrors that they could unleash, but understand that we were told that the war would be over in a few days. The Ukrainians had no hope. And if they, they should just give up now. And God is saying to his people, you've been told how great and terrible these armies are, but don't lose faith. In fact, he's saying in 65 years, just in a person's lifetime, the northern tribe is going to cease to be a kingdom. And the kingdom of Aram, capital city in Damascus, is going to be no big deal. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz in verse 11, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But now we hear from Ahaz, and he says in verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this might sound like a very holy response. Sometimes people can disobey God and sound very spiritual and very holy while doing so. Jesus quotes the same verse. Remember when Satan is tempting Jesus? You might have remember a year ago when we started studying the Gospel of Matthew and, and the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And one of the temptations is, throw yourself from this high place. Because the scripture says, that God will put his angels in charge over you and to care for you. And if God's done that, then you won't even stub a toe as you fall. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus' response was to quote this same verse. Do not test the Lord your God. 
Ahaz sounds very spiritual, sounds very holy. And yet, even though he's quoting the same verses as Jesus, he is not. Isaiah responds, Hear now, you house of David. It is, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Meaning, he's saying to Ahaz, Look, you have been frustrating enough to your people. Are you trying to frustrate God? You can go check out 2 Chronicles chapter 28. It tells you about King Ahaz. King Ahaz was not one of the good kings of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had no good kings, not one leader who followed God's ways. The southern kingdom of Judah, sometimes they would have a good king and the king would do what God wanted. And they weren't perfect, but they would generally try to do what God wanted. A lot of times they had a bad king. Ahaz was one of the bad kings. Ahaz would not follow God's ways. Ahaz sacrificed, we're told in in 2 Chronicles 28, he sacrificed his own children. Human sacrifice, child sacrifice. He sacrificed his own children in the fires of pagan worship. He established centers of pagan worship in, in high places, in the groves and the hills. Isaiah is saying to him, you have been frustrating people. And now you're trying to frustrate God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Why is it that Jesus refused to put God to the test? And here, the king is saying, I won't do an evil thing and test test God. And yet, Isaiah is calling him out for it. Isaiah is criticizing him for not taking God up on his offer. Let me Put me to the test. Let me give you a sign. I believe the answer is this. It has to do with intention. If I am putting God to the test, for example, let's go back to the temptation of Christ. When the devil says, throw yourself from this place so that God will surely protect you because he said that he will. And Jesus said, I will not put God to the test. The human part of Jesus would not test the Father would not frustrate the Father, would not exasperate the Father. I, I believe it's, it's the same as like, there's things that I could do and you would see the love of my wife or the love of my kids or the love of my friends or whatever. But in doing so, I would be frustrating them. I would be exasperating them. I would be giving them all kinds of cause to have anger and issue with me. Why would I do that? In what way is that loving? But if I were to go to a friend or a loved one and say, what can I do? How can I serve you? How can I give of myself to you? Isn't that a loving thing? A right thing? Is there anything wrong with them saying, can I ask for help in this way? I don't believe so. It has to do with intention and who's offering. Am I taking from God or is he giving? And here he is trying to reach out to Ahaz, this bad king, this wicked king, trying to bring him in as God does to all people, bringing us in from our wickedness, from our rebellion. And he's trying to bring him in and say, hey, let me show you my good ways. Let me show you my better paths. Ahaz says, I won't do it. So Isaiah says, fine, you won't ask God for a sign. You won't ask God to show himself to you. Then here's what God's going to do. 
verse 14. Yahweh himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will be called Emmanuel. That means God with us. He will be eating curds and honey. And when he knows enough to reject right and choose, or reject the wrong and choose the right, for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time like any other since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle flies from the Nile Delta and Egypt and bees from the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the deep ravines and the crevices and the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all the water holes. And in the day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of of Assyria, to shave your head and your private parts and cut off your beard also. Well, that's lovely. Adam, I thought this was a Christmas sermon. What's this all about? Bear with me. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, there will be curds to eat, and all who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. And in that day, every place, there will be thousand vines worth of silver shekels, but there will only be briars and thorns. So what he's saying is where there used to be places of expensive vineyards, there will now just be thorn bushes and wastelands. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for the fear of the briars and thorns, and they will become places where cattle are turned loose and sheep will run. So he's saying everything that you've built up and that you're so proud of and you feel you have your strength in will be torn down and laid waste too. Adam, again, this is not sounding very Christmassy. Where's where's the jingle bells and the ho, ho, ho and the peace on earth and all of that? Well, let's finish up with King Ahaz and then I'll get to how this gets to Christmas. King Ahaz was a bad guy. King Ahaz was a wicked man. And he was in a bad place that was largely brought on by his own doing. And yet in that place, in that moment where his world was shaken, God had sent a word of comfort and encouragement. Be careful, but do not fear. Be careful, do not be shaken. I'm with you, Ahaz. I want to work with you. I want to come along and and be part of your world. I want to... I want you to be my king. I want want to be your God. I want you to be my servant among the people. This offer is made to him. And he will not have it. So God gives him a sign, and it's actually a sign of hope. Ahaz, you're going to be taken away as a captive. You're going to be taken away. This humiliation of having your beard shaven and everything else shaven, and that means he's, how how are they going to know everything shaven? They're going to parade him through the streets of Damascus, naked and chained. He'll be beaten. He will be humiliated. And yet at some point in the poverty, curds and honey is poor food. It's, It's famine food. 
It's what you eat when there's nothing left. You just go find honey from the wild bees and you, you eat the curds that are left over from the milk of a, a cow or a goat. There's nothing to eat. The cultivated food is gone. The game is scarce. The herds have been taken by the plunderers. You're in desperate times. This is famine food. And it's in these times that God will send a sign of hope. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. And before he is old enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, these kingdoms will be shattered. Now, obviously, if you know the Christmas story, you know that both Matthew and Luke include in their Christmas accounts that Jesus was born of a virgin. You don't even have to read the Bible. Just seen a Christmas movie about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Um, the nativity was made about, what, 10, 15 years ago. The star, which is like a CGI cartoon, uh, was made a few years ago. It's actually a way better movie than you would think it is. Like when I first heard that the star was coming out, uh, I, I thought, I have no interest in seeing this movie. Uh, it's got Oprah in it and, and Joel Osteen. And I'm just like, what? Kelly Clarkson's in this movie? I, I don't know. I don't know that I care about this movie. Let me tell you, I watch it every Christmas now. Uh, it is one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's actually very, very accurate. Um, in, in, aside from the talking animals, it's a very fairly accurate story. Um, I recommend it to people. I love the star. Also, um, Tracy Morgan and Tyler Perry's interactions with Oprah as the camels. I, I quote that. My wife and I quote that to each other all the time. I love that movie so much. Anyway, but you know... Matthew and Luke, in their gospel accounts, the Christmas story, make a big emphasis that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Mary was unmarried and had never had relationship with a man in a physical, intimate way. And yet she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus was miraculously conceived and born in miraculous circumstances. And Matthew is explicit. The same gospel that we just finished studying last week. Matthew is explicit that the virgin birth is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Matthew explicitly states that what happened when Jesus was born was a fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, Another movie that came out right about the time I graduated from high school. It uh, was very popular among, uh, especially guys my age. And uh, I don't recommend it all. And I actually don't think it's held up that well. I thought it was amazing when it came out. But it started with a heist, a diamond heist. And there were these guys uh, pretending to be Jewish rabbis. And they were debating uh, this whole thing about Isaiah chapter 7. And what they were saying, and this is something that you might have seen in that movie, or maybe you uh, have seen or heard somewhere else or read somewhere else. What they were saying is in the Hebrew, because the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures were, was written primarily in Hebrew with a small amount of Aramaic and some uh, other languages thrown in. And the word 
For virgin in Hebrew is the word betula, which means young maiden, a young woman of marriageable age, uh, but does not mean virgin. And then when they translated the Hebrew word betula into the Greek, then they translated it into the Greek word parthenos, which does mean virgin, but it's a translation error. And so they're saying, hey, you know what? The Christians make a big deal about the virgin birth, but that's not even what Isaiah was saying. He was just saying, a young woman will give birth to a son, and that's all he meant. Here's the thing. I don't claim to be an expert in ancient languages. I, I took New Testament Greek in my undergrad. I took New Testament Greek in my grad school, and I took some Hebrew in grad school. Now, my undergrad... Uh, professor of New Testament Greek, also uh, was highly qualified uh, to teach Hebrew. He was uh, a retired uh, professor from Cambridge, and um, he, he was uh, teaching at my Bible college basically for fun, I guess. Um, and so he would come once a week and, you know, way, way, way below his talent level teach, teach us knuckleheads. Um, but he would throw in a bunch of Hebrew stuff for free because he, he, he said he actually enjoyed that language better. Um, so I'm not an expert, but I have enough education to read the experts, to understand the debates, to have a working knowledge. Here's where I'm at on this. The word betula, which is translated here as virgin, appears in the Hebrew scripture about 50 times. From Genesis through Malachi, about 50 times. And about 12 or 13 of those times, it's used metaphorically or artistically. So you could kind of excuse those, put those aside, because if they're not speaking of literal things, you could say, okay, there's, let's take those away because they're not speaking of literal things. They're used metaphorically or artistically or as, um, you know, kind of illustrations. So that leaves about 37 times where the word betula is used for literal people in literal situations. Out of those 37, the scholars that I read said about 21 of the 37 times, contextually, the word implicitly is referring to women who are virgins. 21 out of 37. Now that's a significant number. You know, some words are like 100%. It only means that and always only ever means that. And some words can mean a lot of things depending on context, especially if you're dealing with um, ancient languages where, they're, where they are um, either not as developed as some languages or they're trying to save space um, in typing or just th that's how they do things. For example, I, I am not uh, an expert on Spanish either, but I've been working real hard on my Spanish this last year. And I can tell you that the word L, E-L, the word L in Spanish can mean the, it can mean he, and it can mean on. You could have a sentence, you could have a sentence where the word L is used three times and have three different meanings and it would be 100% dependent on context. You could say he will be at the baseball game on Thursday and in Espanol, it would be, the word L would be there three times and it would have three different meanings depending on the context. So context matters, especially in some languages. So if 21 out of 37 times the word specifically means by context virgin, I'm going to take that seriously. Plus, 
When they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek in what's called the Septuagint, this was well before Jesus came on the scene. Well before Jesus came on the scene. And those rabbis and scribes who did the translation from Hebrew into Greek specifically chose the word Parthenos for Isaiah 7. They specifically chose the word Parthenos, virgin. They understood Isaiah to be saying something miraculous. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Now, what does that mean for Ahaz? How does that help him? I kind of have two thoughts about this. It's possible that Isaiah is frustrated with Ahaz. And he has no real intention of giving him a sign. He's, he's like, you want a sign? Look, I know some things. Like that Isaiah, Isaiah has, I, I love the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the throne room of heaven. Isaiah saw things beyond which most people will never see this side of eternity. And I think he could just be frustrated and say, you want to know something, Isaiah, Ahaz? You want to see the power of God? Here's something that's going to happen in the future. That's how powerful God is. It could be that he's just giving a sort of a frustrated response to him. Jesus did something similar with the Pharisees. They were like, can you show us a sign? After they had seen miracles and healings and heard his teaching and seen all of these different confirmations that he was the Messiah, they said, could you please show us a sign? And he said, you won't get any more signs except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three nights in the fish, so the Son of Man will be three nights in the grave. And he said, you're, the only sign you're getting is that I'm going to die and rise from the dead, is what Jesus is telling them. And so it could be that that's what Isaiah is telling King Ahaz. Possible. It could also be, because we spoke about this over the last few weeks as we studied the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus teaches the disciples about the final days, the, the end times. And one of the things that we've talked about is that biblically, prophecy has first and full fulfillments partial and full fulfillments, or sometimes they might have this concept of sort of a pattern of fulfillment, that there is a, a prophecy about something and you see it kind of played out over generations and generations. It's very possible that in his captivity, in his humiliation, in his brokenness, King Ahaz is there in Damascus, and maybe a young woman in his company, you know, maybe he's kept in some like, um, you know, some house or some place just outside the city or some house inside the, you know, the big royal palace. We don't know for sure where he was, but maybe somebody in his company or in his, you know, kingdom, uh, you know, maybe one of the royal officials that have been captured with him. Someone's, someone has a child. And names that child Emmanuel. And the king hears and goes, wait, what did you name that child? And he remembers the words of the prophet. And for him, Batula did not mean virgin. It just meant young woman. And he hears that a young woman has had a child. And that child has been named Emmanuel, God with us. And for him, it's very personal. It's a reminder that God was with him. We don't know for sure. I think 
it's speculation, but I, I don't think it's bad speculation. So it's possible that Isaiah was just giving him a kind of a frustrated, well, you want a sign? God's going to do this thing. It's far in the future. It's also possible that there was a first or a partial fulfillment. That while he was in captivity, somebody in his circle, in his sphere of, of connection, gave birth and named this, the boy uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And even in their humiliation, eating the food of poverty and famine and desperation. Within that time, the kingdoms of his enemies fell. The kingdoms of those who the world esteemed as great fell. Just as a young woman of no special place in a country that nobody cared about gave birth to a son even though she had never had physical relations with a man and hope was brought into the world. Now, why does the virgin birth matter? I, I believe that the gospel writers are 100% emphatic that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Mary had never known a man intimately. Well, it matters for these reasons. And it matters both to our faith and to us personally. And here's how. First is that it's core to the divinity of Jesus and it's core to his sinlessness. And here's what I mean by that. It's core to the divinity of Jesus. It's core to this claim that Jesus is not just another human or he's not just the best possible version of humanity, but that Jesus is fully God as much as he is fully human. That Jesus is the is the embodiment of divinity. He is equally God with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That he was not born of solely physical means, but there was divine, supernatural uh, involvement in his birth. Also his sinlessness. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says in the book of Romans that just as one person's sin, the original Adam, and then sin entered the world. We, we call that concept original sin, this idea that the first people, Adam and Eve, sinned and the curse of sin and death has been plaguing humanity ever since. All of us are born with a sin nature. Jesus was not born with a sin nature. Do we know how? No. There's been a lot of pages and ink and typing and all that spent on trying to figure out how Jesus was born sinless. I personally think that it is maybe interesting conversation at most, but dangerous speculation more likely when we try to figure out things that the Bible has not made clear to us. However it happened, Jesus was born sinless. He was born without defect, fault, or blemish. And something about his birth, I believe, was involved with that. So, you know, we, we've talked a lot in the last few months about things that I would not fight over. I'm not interested in breaking fellowship or getting into arguments over like the end times uh, or, or Bible prophecy or, you know, do you like this type of music or that type of music in the church or what, what you know, what's your denominational label? I don't care about those things. But I will stand firm 
on, on core and essential beliefs of the Christian faith. And the virgin birth is one of them. And it is because it goes directly to who Jesus claimed to be. His humanity, he was born of a woman, fully human. And his divinity, born of divine means of supernatural intervention, sinless from the beginning. The virgin birth matters because it calls us to repentance and to return. King Ahaz, in his brokenness, in in his humiliation, in, in in the bed of his own making, and yet here is a sign given to him to call him back. Even in that moment of his life, God was calling to him. Even when when his enemies are surrounding him, his his capital is under siege, God was calling to him. When he was carried away in chains and humiliated and dragged through the enemy's capital naked and, and beaten, God was calling to him. It was a sign to one man, come back to me. It matters because it shows us the kingdom way. And what I mean by that is this. Think about the just, we're, we're adults here. Think about the realities of this. That we, we, we have this thought that like we're somehow like sexually enlightened in our modern times. And, and that, you know, everybody before 1960 just never had any sort of enlightenment or whenever, whatever date you want to set, you know, but whatever time it was, and we are so enlightened now and they were all prudes and, you know, re- repressed and everything like that. That's foolishness. Humanity has always been broken and sinful and that is included in how our sexuality has been lived out. We have always been sinful and broken in our sexuality. The idea here is that here's a young woman who lived as God calls young people to live. And a young man, Joseph, who also lived in that purity. Think about this. Joseph and Mary got married. And yet, Matthew's clear. He didn't touch her. He could have. Would have been in his, you know, like, they're married. What's wrong? But so that this could be fulfilled all the way through. He lived sacrificially. That kind of selflessness, that kind of, and I'm not even talking about sex. Like, don't, don't limit this to sex. I'm talking about selfless living. I'm talking about living in a way that is God first and myself second. That's so foreign to our whole culture. Everything in our culture is about ourselves and about our entitlements and about what we want and what we're about. It's not the kingdom way. My rights, my freedoms is not the kingdom way. God's plans, God's purposes is the kingdom way. And the virgin birth is is a direct call and reminder for us to live in that. And finally, I think there is an embrace, call for us to embrace the miraculous. Christmas is a miraculous story. There's no way around that. The virgin birth, the angels proclaiming Jesus was born, the star in the the sky, all of that is miraculous. And in a day and age that is increasingly cynical, increasingly cynical and jaded, 
to return to a place of wonder and awe and an awareness that the miraculous, the supernatural is all around us. The virgin birth is so important because it calls us to return to that element of our faith that God is beyond nature. He is supernatural. He is beyond the limitations of this natural world. And he is working and he is moving. We pray because we know that God works beyond the limitations of the world around us. We, we know that God is not, not just working in one place, he's working in all places. The virgin birth matters more than anything because it's core to our belief in who Jesus is, but it also calls us to, to be excited excited about the possibilities of what God can do. Christmas, I love Christmas. I love Christmas so much. And one of the things I love most about Christmas is the excitement about the possibility of the miraculous work that God is capable of. Whether you are in chains, in a, in a prison of your own making, whether you're a young teenage girl who God is calling to do something that you have no preparation for. Whether you're Isaiah being told to go and to speak the word of God to a king. Whether you're just an average person trying to live your life in the kingdom way. The excitement for the miraculous work that God is doing. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, this invitation is to you. The virgin has conceived and born a son. His name is Jesus, God with us. And he is with us and he is calling out to you to come and be part of his kingdom. And for those of us who are believers, a reminder and encouragement to be excited about the wonder of what God is doing even in the darkest night, even in the clouded uncertainty. I think of a song that I love and it says, we smile in the mystery in the night when nobody sees. We smile in the mystery because we are excited for the miraculous wonder of what God is doing at all times. But we are especially aware of it at Christmas time. God bless you. May the peace of Jesus be with you. Jesus who was born of a virgin but for the purpose of of going to a cross to save us from sin and death. And we are so thankful for that truth as we begin our journey towards Christmas Sunday. I want to remind you that Christmas is on Sunday. And so what we are going to be doing this year is uh, we will have Christmas Sunday. We will have church, family service. Uh, people can come in their Christmas PJs if they want. It's going to be real chill and laid back. And then New Year's Day is also on a Sunday, and we're going to have uh, we have breakfast together, and we have a real chill service in the fellowship hall. So uh, we're excited for the holidays. We're looking forward to them, and uh, can't wait to celebrate them with you as we journey to Christmas together.